0: You know, with Germany legalising cannabis, I think that's a kind of bellwether moment for for yeah. Europe, um, and, I, and I can see I can see it really being a kind of you know domino effect. Already, other 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 smaller countries in Europe seems to have already made moves. You know, the, these things do happen in, in kind of. It's quite, it can be quite sudden when, when the Overton window you know, shifts and we, we see success even closer to home than, than across, across the Atlantic. Um, so it's a very interesting moment.
1: Yeah, one minute, it's impossible, uh, the next inevitable. Welcome to The Pin Factory, the Adam Smith Institute's podcast. My name is Daniel Pryor and I'm the Head of Research at the ASI. And in this week's episode, I'm very pleased to be joined by Matter Busby, a freelance journalist for various publications, including The Guardian, Observer, London Times, Vice, Jacobin and Leafly. Uh, his first book, which is going to be the, the major focus of this week's episode, is called Should All Drugs Be Legalised and was published in the UK by Thames and Hudson in May this year. And it's out in North America this week at the, the time of recording. So drug policy being the, the main focus of today's podcast and i guess just to to get straight into it and and your background on focusing on this issue why is it that you you decided to to write about drug policy and to spend your time on uh, on chronicling the changes in it what first got you interested and why are you passionate about it now
0: yeah th- thanks very much for having me on daniel um I would often see people in in the streets of Bletchley and Milton Keynes where I grew up and I wondered why common sense measures were not being taken to kind of help them, avoid the alcohol and drug misuse that was leading to homelessness and destitution and exacerbating their, their plight seemingly. I also had experiences with drugs when I was younger, many of which took me to states of euphoria, pure bliss, relaxation, but on a... Small number, yet significant amount of occasions, I became really paranoid, distressed, and in some of the cases, it was certainly down to contamination, mm-hmm. and on others from you know taking too much, not knowing how strong it was, you know mixing various substances, including alcohol. Yeah, also with booze, I drank far too much on on a number of occasions, and while I I don't drink now. Um, I was always struck by it by the lack of education regarding drinking as well as drugs in, in UK schools and in the public sphere. Um, so yeah, well when I started working in the media in 2017, I felt that some evidence-based solutions and issues weren't being adequately covered, so I would often propose to write about these topics and then the debates about medical cannabis and drug consumption rooms came to prominence. Um, and yeah, I started start looking into it and chronic, chronicling how the campaigns were um, unfolding. Regarding the book specifically, to be honest, I, I was approached by the publisher because of because of mm. because of my reporting. Um, but my, my wish is is that you know it's ba- balanced and objective and helps raise awareness of, of the awful situation that many people around the world still find themselves in due to government drug policies that persecute and kill people for using and transporting not just chemicals but but plant-based substances materials which you know is is ultimately to explore to the states of consciousness whether that comes from a place of, of trauma or or pure hedonism it, it's a mere 20,000 words though my initial draft was about double that and it it was a long old process with some delays due to covid and you know, new stories coming up in the in the drug policy world over the, over the three years it was in development. But it, it contains about 150 photos and it's kind of a poppy product for, for the copy table. Um, mm-hmm. So I, ho- I hope that breaks new ground. And yeah, while I've loved the opportunity to create a real kind of globetrotting tour de force like Anthony Lowenstein's Pills, Powder and Smoke or Johanna Hari's Chasing the Scream, I, I'm, I'm pleased that, that this has a good chance to reach more casual readers and come comes at a point in the debate where yeah this this question isn't what isn't taboo what whatsoever whereas even perhaps three or four or five years ago there might have already been some kind of hit pieces on on the book um Mm. in the media like you know or negative reviews indeed but there's there's kind of been broad silence I've, i've got a little bit of positive coverage
1: yeah there's a couple of things that that I picked up on there that, that are really interesting because they, they kind of parallel how I got first interested in, in drug policy reform uh, and movements towards legal regulation. And the first that you mentioned, that kind of a lot of experiences growing up seem to have planted a seed. And hang on, something's not right with the way that we we regulate or that we treat these products under criminal law, and indeed in wider culture, certainly in, in the UK at least. Um, you know, a lot of the time I would see like my my friends go and and see their their dealer and try and get some weed. First off, they weren't 18, they were underage, the dealer didn't ask for ID. Secondly, when they went to that dealer for weed, they got offered MDMA. And you see this kind of gateway effect, just not in the way that some detractors of legal regulation commonly put it. Uh, In fact, a gateway effect caused by prohibition in in that particular case. Um, And then also the the point that you made about the the role of, of hedonism and um and changing your psychological state in drug policy discussions i think this is something that for for understandable reasons sometimes can be can be overlooked uh in that you know the conversation is rightly mainly focused on on harm reduction um and the various elements that that comprise of that but also this this fundamental point that people Take drugs and consume substances because they enjoy them, because it gives them some satisfaction, or because they feel, in some cases at least, that it contributes to to their idea of of the good life, the the life well lived. Uh, and this is something that I think, coming from you know the ASI's, uh, the Adam Smith Institute's more kind of classical liberal background in terms of our, our political philosophy, I think. Uh, you know, we we try and highlight a little more where we can in, in this debate as well. Um, but I guess moving on to the, the kind of other aspect of this, you mentioned, you know, it, it's not quite, um, the, the book isn't necessarily the, you know, 200, 300,000 word total tour de force of, um, of drug system and drug regulation around the world. But for the listeners who maybe aren't as familiar with how we came to arrive at a, a near global system of prohibition, what's been the process, both on the international, but also in terms of the UK, the domestic level that has led to to drug policy existing in, in, as it does today?
0: Sure, yeah, I cover this in some detail in, in the book. But yeah, just just to briefly go back to the point you made before, I have a friend who, who appears on the telly sometimes um, as a kind of talking head regarding drug policy. And you're right, you know, the focus is is mainly on addiction and, and helping people mm. that are dependent On drugs and in awful situations but you know like alcohol a large majority if not an overwhelming majority of people that that use drugs you know will do so kind of unproblematically even if some some occasions do spill into you know some unpleasant situations just like someone you know throwing up from alcohol having a you know an awful day on 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 a sunday after after a big night but it's interesting like yeah how how did we get here as a society where we're at this moment where we we can push forward like progressive policies, but but the i the idea that you know the argument of enjoyment um, would would be kind of centre stage is still kind of even even taboo perhaps. Um, mm-hmm. But I I think that's all changing, and having you know certain people in the in the public sphere who, who aren't coming from a place of addiction might might help because because many many of the people that speak on these issues are actually you know people who have, who have recovered. So it's, mm. it's a very different different narrative. Um, but how, how, did, how did we get here? I mean, humans have always used, used plants to explore altered states of consciousness, whether that's wheat that's used for alcohol or psychedelic mushrooms in, in Central America and peyote or the aboga plant. Of, of Gabon that, that may have also been used for a couple of thousand years uh, ayahuasca in in the jungle also you know potentially thousands of years and actually until this global prohibition regime many countries had kind of liberal liberal policies for, for better or worse you know where strong opiates cocaine, even other later controlled drugs were, were available at pharmacies but throughout the 20th century that the u.s, led the efforts to pro- prohibit drugs on, on the national and international level. Seemingly, I mean, my analysis is it was mostly driven through a fear of the unknown, which is kind of rooted in some sort of addiction to control, especially over people mm. of color. And steadily, this, this system was codified at the UN, and many aspects of it seem almost transposed from US federal law. By the end of the 90s, the UN was campaigning for a drug-free world. You know, some, looking back at some of the posters, I mean, just illustrates how out of touch you know, governing institutions are with people. But yeah, as, as we've noted, you know, things are changing and member states in 2020 voted to remove cannabis from the, the strictest scheduling, that, which had falsely came to it, had no medical use. In the UK, the law and order approach is, is being abandoned. You know, it's also notable to say that there was a kind of so-called British system in the mid 20th century in the uk where people addicted to heroin were, were provided you know with, with prescription diamorphine and although it, the use of the drug heroin was on a far smaller scale to today you know it seemed to you know ensure that people weren't forced into criminality to feed a very physical dependency
1: yeah the, the, the british system is one that, that always fascinates me because i imagine a, a large majority of people that have come across Any sort of drug policy debate, or perhaps are kind of casually interested or or follow it, aren't aware that in the UK up until the Misuse of Drugs Act in seventy one, we had this this much more progressive system when it came to to treating people that were struggling with with addiction. You know, it was as as far as I'm aware, effectively, if you um, if you demonstrated that you were a a problem user uh, of of heroin, for example, then with appropriate oversight and safeguards you could effectively walk into a boots with a prescription um and get it and it seemed like that was a, a setup that people were, were fairly comfortable with uh and, and seemed to to work quite well it's not as though that this current you know, class a class b class c system that we've had with the associated penalties uh, for supply and possession has been with us for all time it is a, a fairly modern invention um and and arguably a, a break with um, with you know most of most of history in some ways, um, although I'm sure you you will be able to tell me that there's plenty of examples of uh, prohibition in throughout history uh, far beyond that but you mentioned um, and I think it's probably a good way to kind of come on to this next section that some of the the harms that are caused by criminalization there uh, one of them being you know if you if you don't take a, a harm reduction or indeed some form of legal. Uh, regulation approach, then you're going to end up incentivizing you know, criminality in order to fuel uh, addiction or addictive behavior. If you were to to think of, of, of two or three of the biggest harms, like rating them in terms of importance, what what do you think are the biggest harms from from criminalization and, and prohibition? The ones that really cause the the most damage um, on both the domestic and international level.
0: Yes, I mean, it seems to me that, that drug prohibition causes more harm than, than the drugs themselves. One of the first explicit prohibitions, I believe, was in, in Madagascar in the 18th century when, when the new king objected to people eating hashish and forgetting their senses. But actually, the, the, the effect of, of banning anything, it seems, is then, you know, there's a greater profit incentivization and the criminalization in itself forces criminals to be in charge of the market which which leaves drugs contaminated to sometimes fatal degrees and it leaves you know millions of mostly marginalized people in jail for non-violent acts that you know in many cases they, they would have been you know almost almost forced into whether whether physically or, or due to economic and social social factors and both these realities you know cause untold trauma throughout communities and families
1: yeah i i think that kind of the consequences of criminalization, uh, incarceration, or indeed criminal records are are often not as well appreciated in, at least in the, the UK debate, because, you know, when, when I speak to, to politicians who are skeptical of, of drug reform, then they'll say, oh, you, you can't talk about uh, people being locked away in prisons for getting caught with cannabis in the UK, or indeed, you know, the classic example, Peter Hitchens, the idea that we've never actually fought the war on on drugs in the uk i think a lot of that neglects that it's not just although incarceration and clearly in the us is 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 massive unjust and causes untold harm it's also those those knock on life consequences from things just in terms of convictions or, or getting a criminal record you know the effect that that has on on housing chances on uh, on travel on getting insurance on every aspect of your life and the idea that I think is Alex Stevens at the University of Kent highlighted some good Ministry of Justice data. There's been something over 200,000 uh, convictions for cannabis possession since 2008 in the UK. And that's, you know, if we assume each of those convictions is one person, which, of, of course, it isn't. But even if we assume half, that's you know, 100,000 people plus that have their life chances significantly ruined, even if they're not going directly to uh to prison. But one of the things that we, we discussed over, over email before this podcast that I think it, it has definitely been overlooked, and I, I count myself amongst the people that's overlooked this, is the environmental impacts of prohibition on the, the international stage. And this is something that doesn't really feature, it seems, in in much uh, official reporting on, on drug policy. Am I correct in that assessment, would you say?
0: Sure, yeah. I, I, think, I think it's often overlooked, the, the connection between drug policy and the environment. A new UN report for the first time has included a, a booklet on the connection between illegal drugs and the environment and, you know, it highlights, I quote, the harmful imp- impact of illicit cultivation of crops used for production of narcotic drugs in the environment may lead to deforestation, pollution of soil and water and to seize opportunities offered by alternative development. So, But, but the whole report seems to ignore you know, the effects of of prohibition. So, you know, what happens is having drugs as illegal facilitates the taking over of vast swathes of countryside by criminal gangs, meaning that when countries make environmental pleasures, they're in places impossible to keep. You know, it's giving billions of pounds to these these criminal groups, you know, some of whom are engaging in awful acts, you know, including possibly the the dreadful murders of, of Dom Phillips and his companion Bruno and regarding eradication campaigns of, of land used to grow drugs, you know, these are underca- undertaken with dangerous chemicals, you know, sort of Roundup-like chemicals, which have awful consequences on the land and, and the people, and, you know, in many cases seem to only lead to production being relocated. In fact, you know, just before there was the in government in Colombia, a US-backed scheme had just restarted, dis- despite, despite all the concerns. And due to a lack of, of regulation of, of drug production, you know, environmentally damaging techniques can be used in, in the agricultural process to you know speed up growth or, or make you know even even make it stronger. Um, and lastly you know the effect of prohibition in inflating the prices of drugs which would otherwise you know be much cheaper at retail value seems to also incentivize farmers grow those instead of other crops which can you know accelerate deforestation in in search of greater profits or or indeed at the barrel of the gun. Yeah
1: on the the kind of environmental point from a free market perspective one of the things that springs to mind is prohibition effectively acts in in a way as as a tax or a tariff on importing illicit drugs right so it encourages in a lot of ways more domestic production uh, of, say, you know, your, your cannabis farm, your illegal cannabis farms in the UK that often use uh, trafficked labor from places like Vietnam. If you had a system where you had legal and regulated trade, then you could probably take better advantage of, you know, in some countries, the climate is much more suited to growing certain crops. In some countries, perhaps the, the industries associated with production of other drugs are more specialized, more efficient. Uh, and actually more environmentally friendly when we talk about this in the context of a free trade more broadly one of the examples that we use is that you know it's it's much more environmentally friendly to grow tomatoes in spain and then import them here even with the air miles because you're effectively importing sunshine um, and you don't have to use as many you know greenhouses and the energy that goes into that in in response now there's obviously you know a debate about whether that applies in all circumstances, and obviously some domestic production is going to be more environmentally friendly. But that just uh, just occurred to me as a, another kind of aspect of how prohibition could could harm the the environment there.
0: Yes, I think that's a key point. And, and regulation in places like Mexico, Afghanistan, Colombia, and other countries could potentially transform their economies for the better through, through the development of illegal kind of opium and, and coca markets, you know, an expected gradual disempowerment of the destabilizing impacts, you know, of organized crime groups, but just on the free trade point, I, I, I do I do agree in in aspects, but then you know, Another byproduct of, of a kind of more laissez-faire system is is that you know supermarkets and other, and other you know buyers do just go to the, the, the cheapest place. So that actually leads in the UK to produce seasonal produce coming from Eastern Europe mm. when when we have we have seasonal produce growing in the in the UK at the time, and you know our farmers our farmers get overlooked.
1: Yeah, I can imagine, and I I know speaking to to colleagues involved in the drug reform movement, that's a a, a serious concern with Especially if you're a, you know, a poorer country that heavily relies on, on, on agriculture for, for income and you're being outcompeted competed by, by other countries in that regard who may have you know, a, a fully-fledged or more laissez-faire market in this, then that could, could cause serious problems for the people involved in, in that industry. Um, but I, I think it it's worth we, we should we should get into some of those those nitty-gritty debates um in a moment. I just wanted to, to kind of finish up this section because we talked a lot about the obvious and clear harms from criminalization. What's the strongest case that you've come across personally for for actually maintaining or indeed enforcing uh the existing way that we, we treat drugs in most of the world? At the moment, it was the kind of the steel man case for actually we should double down on, on prohibition. We should enforce the law more harshly. Uh, is there one or, or indeed is, is that just not something that's that's on your radar?
0: I'm not sure that there's a case for really doubling down. None of, none of the evidence suggests that that works due to the kind of amorphous nature of criminal groups, the globalised economic system we live in and humans' inherent desire to alter their to their states of consciousness. But the, I, I do think... You know, the strongest case is, is is the fact that it's not implausible that large, highly militarised criminal groups, you know, might object to the legalisation of, of all drugs. This could cause, you know, especially in places like Mexico, for instance, you know, the drug gang violence of today, and you know, to reach new extremes. But, you know, I, I think it's perhaps more likely that, you know, these groups would simply shift into fresh enterprises or kind of merge into the legitimate economy. For example, you know, the loss of cannabis profits is thought to have led Latin American crime groups to move further into the legal mining logging and alcohol supply trade, you know, Hmm. I'm not saying this is a good thing, but it shows shows they're not seeking to kind of wage war against the, the state over this. Also, you know, it takes time for legal sales to outweigh illegal sales. As, as the case of Canada, in um, with cannabis shows, um, and illegal markets will always exist to some extent. So, I, as I say, I, I, you know, I would suggest that criminal groups are far too amorphous to kind of risk mass arrest and death, you know, on such a scale. You know, even mm. even if some of their most lucrative products were slowly prized away, at times, compelling argument is, is that drug misuse might mm. rise in in step with legalisation. But this generally hasn't been the case in the countries which have legalised cannabis and, and the feared apocalypse has, has failed to, you know, materialise and all manner of drugs are on the whole already available to people in most urban centres. And just on that point, uh, a new book published this week by, by James Wilk, Drinking Up the Revolution, uh, very very, very good book. I've I've read it and would highly recommend. It notes the kind of ubiquity of alcohol establishments and and the difficulties of obtaining, you know, the far less harmful drugs, including psychedelics, and, you know, how the ubiquity of alcohol and the difficulty obtaining, yeah, as I say, other consciousness alterants has a negative effect on on public health.
1: Yeah, on on the alcohol side, something that springs to mind there, Um, the first few years after some of the the US state started to legalize, one of the, the concerns that came out was, well, we'll see an increase in, in traffic fatalities with more people driving whilst high as a result of increased use rates um, post prohibition. And the the research that, that was done on that initially, I haven't checked up on the state of it for, for a couple of years, but the, the papers I remember reading, they admitted, yes, okay, uh, more people are being uh, detained for or, or caught driving whilst high. But that is the the effect on traffic fatality was massively outweighed by the the reduction in people drink driving right because for some people at least it seemed as though cannabis was was a substitute for alcohol use and actually the the net public health result in that um, was was a a slight positive so that that one always really interested me as a potential issue on
0: yes and and three million people die a year directly related to alcohol
1: very very few if
0: any people die directly in relation to to cannabis use so i have never i've never driven you know under the influence of alcohol but i would imagine being really stoned versus being really drunk you know i I i would prefer to drive really stoned
1: so some of my school friends and uh sick form friends tell me yes i think that's that's (laughs) uh, pretty pretty common knowledge um for for some of us yeah um Interesting. This is slightly off topic, but you you reminded me um, talking about some of the, the potential kind of negative health effects. Did you see that that mail article on uh, on scrotumming, amongst other things? Did you come across this at all? Yes, I did. Yeah, um, I so so at first I, I kind of read it and thought, wow, this is completely you know nonsense. Never heard of it, and then realised actually there's um, a, a fellow of ours who who wrote an excellent paper for us on. Uh, the case for drug consumption rooms who told me that no it's it's a it's a real thing obviously it's not called that in the the medical sense but it that article for for us just from the context of the Adam Smith Institute was the latest in a long line of pieces that we've seen go up get a lot of coverage and then write an extremely long and detailed takedown blog post of uh afterwards so in the process of researching that I uh, I learned that uh a a medical condition i'd never heard of was was indeed real um i think it's certainly i think it's certainly the case you know that you know if you if you
0: if you smoke a lot of of cannabis you know including certain kinds of strains Mm. my understanding is that it will like increase the levels of acid somehow you know in Mm -hmm. in in the body particularly if you're also consuming a lot of sugary fizzy drinks and snacks so I think it's I think I think it's certainly a thing you know on the whole I thought the article was slightly dubious and perhaps you know highlighting unrepresentative examples to kind of make a wider point seemingly you know in criticism of, of Sadiq Khan's pilot plans for, you know, decriminalizing aspects of cannabis use in, in London. And it shows as well, like anti-cannabis sentiment, you know, does remain large in the conservative press, even if it is a reaction against the plans of a Labour politician. And, you know, I think mm. I think some campaigners might even be disappointed to see Boris Johnson, you know, go out the door. I don't know how many of his advisors, you know, were still in place, the ones that kind of supported cannabis reform. But, you know, he had one or two people in there that, that had been, you know, really staunch advocates mm. know, previously.
1: Well, we, we had this this kind of, this crushing disappointment but not just on, on cannabis reform and drug policy reform in general, but on a whole host of areas where beforehand we were not not necessarily certain, but we were optimistic that there might be some, some liberal reform. So another area that we focused on that Boris had a record on before coming to uh, his prime ministership was looking at the idea of an amnesty for, um, for undocumented migrants and something that he, he came out and said an idea we should definitely look at. Uh, and mentioned it in his first week in parliament and then we never heard from him again so our, our kind of broad view of of boris on on the whole host of issues has been well before he became prime minister maybe there was hope and it seemed like the right people were in place to to maybe get some of these things over the line in a way that a lot of other conservative politicians would not be able to do but you know as as we've seen uh no, well as we haven't seen not, nothing has happened uh, on Perfect. on that front uh, sadly so i think um uh, g- coming back to that that article that the mail article focusing uh, on on california i think that's quite a neat segue to talk about some of the issues that might divide those who are pro drug policy reform but maybe take different stances to what that that blueprint for a legal and regulated market should look like certainly when it comes to cannabis where the debates are, are more fleshed out and there's more material out there i think there's there's clearly a lot of similarities, um, but but also some differences. And one of the things that that sprung to my mind reading that article about California and mentioning um, the the kind of size of the illicit market there is that initially, and I would say this is a free marketeer, California had pretty high tax rates on uh, on legal cannabis. Uh, and I wonder that that kind of forms a a broad view that I have that if you want to if you want to legalize and you want to make that dent in the illicit market, big, sizable, um, and get popular support, you've got to make sure the legal market is effectively able to compete with the illicit market. Uh, Tax, obviously, a key element of that, um, but also I think that plays into other areas. If you look at, say, licensing, for example, in some Canadian provinces, uh, you had licensed lotteries or you had very harsh limits on the number of licenses being given out. You had bans on online delivery. which obviously, you know, if you can go on Snapchat or Instagram or, or whatever and get your local dealer to come to your door in ten minutes, but you can't order online, why would you ever switch to the regulated market? So I get I guess what I'm interested to to know from you is what you make of those those kind of uh inter movement debates and whether you think there is this arguably this trade-off between a public health approach and a a reduction in black market approach?
0: Yeah, as you say, I think, you know, there have broadly been been two main camps in, in the West, the social justice advocates who, who maintain that ensuring you know reform is equitable and then you have a more pragmatic coalition that believe that, you know, while justice for those affected by the drug war is key as our safeguards against, you know, a big pharma takeover. The most important mm-hmm. thing is is kind of legislative progress and certain U.S. states with cannabis have ensured a more equitable transition than others, though you know it seems that white owned kind of venture capital dominates the market you know many if not if not most states in florida black farmers are effectively prevented from participating in the market due to restrictive provisions that were introduced to protect the interests of, of the biggest and you know, more connected landowners, which is, which has really been an awful example of political corruption. But then it, in, in Chicago, even though cannabis smoking in social housing was banned and there have been no policies for the hiring of a former drug dealers, you know, some 20,000 cannabis offenders have been pardoned as part of half a million expungements statewide in a slate of measures that, you know, haven't been seen in certain other states. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's a big, it's a really, it's a really, really big topic. And I think it's key for reform advocates in in the uk to yeah look at things holistically because they really they really you know there really won't be justice if we do then you know follow a kind of system as in as in florida or or mm. or indeed in in california and you know on the, on the point of you know the free market i think there should be some you know moderate safeguards if you ask my opinion mm. at you know, over over over, you know, cannabis sales similar similar to maybe you know alcohol in in Quebec in in Canada where it's certain kind of state-owned stores that are only during certain times. So it's not like a kind of buy your vodka on on the corner store
1: yeah get, get your cannabis from tesco <laughs>
0: yeah but, but you know that's yeah. the situation with alcohol in, in all of england and yeah. you know I, I actually i actually think it stands out as an anomaly in in some respects you know look, looking looking at canada and parts of the us and as james will argues in the, it's re, this recent book if we are going to kind of regulate cannabis and, and perhaps other drugs we do also need to look at the way that alcohol is sold
1: yeah I've, i found that really interesting that I'd say um when when i've chatted with groups like transform for example and you know good friends with uh with steve rolls there and we've had many a, a debate over the uh the precise shape of a legal legal cannabis market that there is that that kind of parallel with, with alcohol actually being you know causing more societal harm more negative externalities uh than than something like a legal cannabis market would and that actually if we're being consistent in the regulating drugs according to their their risks to ourselves and to other people approach, then we should be regulating alcohol more harshly and, and obviously moving the other way on on cannabis, um, which I see, you know, I think is a certainly a, a consistent point of view, and you know it internally I think makes a lot of sense. I guess my my worry with it is that there's always going to be trade offs when when you kind of pursue some of these policies that are more focused on. On the protection of of public health, Leave, leaving aside the the kind of free market um, versus state owned aspect of it, just on things like you know, say, plain packaging of of cannabis uh, in in Uruguay, or you can only have two or three strains of THC and things like that. I can completely accept that amongst the people that that would use that legal market, they would certainly um, see an improvement in in their. Their own health um, and the, the associated consequences for their communities. I guess, again, I'm, I'm just not I'm not yet convinced that the, uh, the, the trade off you make in terms of the people who otherwise would have entered the legal market, but are as a result of it not being good for them, they're still in the, the illicit market. Um, the negative consequence of that is something that, that obviously concerns me as well. Um, but I do think that there's plenty of, of crossover and similarity. I think, and, and in some surprising ways, with, with some of the goals of the, the kind of more social justice um, crowd in the drug reform movement. And I think, and I, and I stress free marketeers rather than pro-business, um, such as ourselves. You know, we in in our blueprint for regulation that we put out a, a few years ago, we were at pains to emphasise licensing and the the racial inequalities that that can. Create if it's done too restrictively. The same with um, making sure that uh, criminal record expungement is is front and center of any sort of legalization efforts, um, and also things I think that you know that they're not necessarily as um, as as intuitively obvious coming at it from the outside, but that, that go towards similar goals. Uh, home growing is another example, I imagine. Um, though I'm not 100% sure that many uh, of the kind of established big cannabis industry players would not necessarily, or at least from their own business interests, would not be fans of something like uh, like home grow and or cooperative growing or cannabis social clubs being allowed as part of a, a regulatory framework, um, because ultimately it's more competition, right? Um, and you know, it's, it's less money for them. But again, I think that there, there is at least some differences between that that market and that that business approach. Um, but interested to know if you, you have any thoughts on that?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, that, that is the case in much of North America. You know, mm. there aren't there aren't the Amsterdam style cafes. There aren't the Spanish style social clubs. And you know, one one does have to ask to what extent you know industry has had a hand in kind of influencing you know the policy discussions that have led to that mm. um, you
1: know point. Well, thinking more into the future, um, I, I guess for the UK context, what does the what does the political process for reform look like here? Because at least the way I see it, uh, I think it might look like a, a gradual accumulation of more more low-level policies, things like uh, diversion schemes that are already being trialed in Thames Valley Police, Durham Constabulary, uh, and obviously most recently Sadiq Khan's proposal in London as well. Uh, Things like drug consumption rooms, perhaps there being some movement on that, recent changes around the legality or the the tolerance towards testing services like the loop that you see at festivals and city centres. Those kind of gradually accumulating and leading towards maybe decriminalisation of some sort and then Legal regulation, but there are some that you know I'll, I'll speak to about this. Would so argue no, we, we're just going to go straight from from what we have now to uh, a legal regulated cannabis market. We're not going to have much of this this in between stuff. So where where do you see the the impetus for reform coming from, and do, do you think that it's going to be a gradual thing or a, a kind of big bang all of a sudden?
0: Yeah, well, the UK is a very interesting case. You know, as as we've as we've touched on, there's a. I think it's a Gramscian idea called silent revolution mm. is where, you know, the, the change comes from the bottom up and, you know, the, the, the governing authorities do gradually re- reform, but it's while they stick to the same rhetoric. And, mm. you know, on the macro level, it's, it's difficult to tell if there have been kind of any changes. So I think that's instructive. Um, the last 12 years, the UK government, as, as I suggest, has broadly stuck to the same rhetoric. And while drug treatment budgets were slashed, you know, almost mm. certainly leading to the deaths of perhaps thousands. The number of people in prison for possession offences has gradually fallen. In 2020, you know, more than 500 people, well, not many more, were jailed for carrying or using substances, mm. I think, for the first offence. And these people are likely to have been on the higher end of the possession spectrum, kind of verging on possession with intent. So that mm. that's compared to kind of more than triple just five years before and you know, many more in the in the preceding years. So what we have is kind of a growing number of police forces introducing over the last decade kind of various decriminalisation models for certain possession and use offences. Because they're sick of this merry-go-round putting so much efforts you know physical and emotional in into you know locking up people who use drugs and then seeing them again six months after that they, after they've you know served a short sentence had no access to rehab and have uh, just gone back out and you know done the same old thing so to some extent it seems that the actions of, of you know the police forces like Thames Valley Durham you know have kind of forced the hand of the government to eventually provide mm-hmm. support for, the, for these these schemes that do you know gradually appear to be bearing fruit we touched on the British system earlier and and actually kind of, you know, state provided heroin assisted treatment pilot in, in Middlesbrough is is doing similar things. I think mm. it's only about a dozen people, but you know, it's, it seems to be lowering wider wider crime rates um, and I understand there may be one or two other other similar projects elsewhere in the UK. In Bristol, the first long-term licence for a service to test the purity of drugs and, and deliver harm reduction advice in a city centre was recently announced in Scotland. Following the heroic campaigning of Peter Kraycan, uh, an application for supervised you know drug consumption facilities you know that, that are, you know there's about a hundred of them across across the world. Like many of them in in Western Europe, I visited one in Denmark. Mm. There's never there's never been a recorded overdose death you know in any of these facilities that will have will have overseen you know tens of thousands if not more of of, in, of injections because you know it's not difficult to to you know save someone's life if, if they're overdosing if you have naloxone and, and to stop them thro- throwing up and choking but yeah as i say in, in scotland it seems that you know free cities may soon have the have these facilities and you know this comes in response to the fact that that there's a deadly overdose crisis in Scotland and, and the fatality rates are far higher than anywhere in Europe. I visited Glasgow in 2020 and it really is an awful situation. It seemingly can only be solved by, you know, some real radical, in terms of, you know, the, the political landscape in the UK, policies. So there's plenty of movement. Uh, but the main two parties obviously don't consider it a vote winner. You know, even Corbyn's Labour was, was pretty coy, you know, even on the softest of issues. The Liberal Democrats do have more progressive policies and I think have supported the legalisation of cannabis and kind of wider decriminalisation. But they did little to push these policies forward when they're in government. Nick Clegg, yeah. you know, put a few interesting stories out that I would I would presume it just wasn't on the table in the coalition discussions with, with the Tories. Notably the Green Party, I understand has a radical policy to, to legalise drugs. But, you know, hats off to Caroline Lucas and, you know, they, they obviously have a role to push things forward, but Obviously, they're not they're not a political force significantly in the House of Commons, partly due to an unequal voting system. Although that's beside the point. But yeah, as we've illustrated, change is happening. You know, without any real support from any of the main parties. You know, it's more the case that changes are occurring outside of their auspices and and they're plodding along um, while making the odd regressive statement. And north of the border, you know, the SNP, you know, are, are are you know being being forced into doing something by by you know this strong campaigning and just the realities of of the situation on the ground and i guess they have to kind of uphold some semblance of, the, of their their progressive ideals so yeah let, let's let see what happens as i said i wouldn't be surprised if the tories came around to the idea of you know legalizing cannabis given given the potential for profit and you know the it would be an interesting way to kind of you know outflank the, the seemingly more 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 progressive parties
1: i think on that what I would say is a pretty uh, a pretty optimistic and, and positive kind of sketch of what might happen in the next few years. It's time to bring this episode of the Pin Factory to a close. Uh, just a big thanks first off to my guest for today, Matter Busby. His new book is out now in the UK, Should All Drugs Be Legalized. It's out in North America this week. So do pick yourself up a copy. I've ordered mine and look forward to, to reading it in full and putting it on my coffee table as well. Uh, The Pin Factory is the Adam Smith Institute's podcast. And if you like what you've heard, then please do like and subscribe to us on your chosen podcast provider. We'll see you next week for yet more analysis. Thank you.